0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Polities Podcast. I am happy to be here with Eric Brandy. Eric, thanks for coming on. I know very little about Eric besides what I've read from him in his book, which of course is a flattering portrait, as one might imagine. (laughs) Eric wrote a book called Better Off um, back in 2005. No, Four. Four? Four. Uh, In which he documents um, his time living with the Amish, uh, about two years, and... Uh, life without technology, or rather, life without uh, a good deal of machine technology. And this was a long time ago, but this is my introduction to you. So I feel like I'm meeting a, I'm being warped into a future here to see you now. Uh, but thanks so much for coming on. Sure. So just to begin our discussion, um, what was it like living with the Amish?
1: Well, it was actually a lot better than I expected. Yeah. Which is funny cause for an idealist because I went in there with very high hopes, and uh, although I was uh, gnawed by worry because I had just gotten married, uh-huh. and our year with the Amish was kind of our honeymoon year. Yeah, we we joined we joined up. We didn't actually join the community, but we but we, but we lived with these people up starting about ten days after our wedding. Wow. Straight out of Boston. My yeah. wife was uh, an accountant in downtown Boston. And I was an, a graduate student at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology.
0: Not exactly the candidates for uh, honeymoon with the Amish there. So what made you decide to do this?
1: Well, there's a sort of a short version of the story and there's a long version of the story. But the long version's in the book. So, you know, you gotta still sell this thing, I hope. <laughs> So, well, I was going to say the long, the long version is not in the book. I gave the short version in the book. There's an even longer version since this is a... This is Change tax. Let's, <laughs> let's do the long version. This is a... Since this is a... The short version that I gave in the book was essentially saying that um, technology is self-defeating. Our modern labor-saving technology does not save labor. It creates labor. It creates multiplies tasks, takes up more of our time, costs a lot and ends up depriving us of time and leisure. Um, And that was the case I made at the beginning of the book using a series of kind of funny anecdotes from my childhood. Yeah. Um, The the story that I didn't tell in the book was that I actually got onto this idea from a Catholic great books program Mm -hmm. at a secular university, the University of Kansas, taught by... uh, Three Catholic professors, even though it was a secular university, they yeah. kind of slipped in under the radar.
0: Well, great books has been the sleeper cell operation of the Catholic <laughs> Church for for decades. Now, I'm sorry to give it away here on this podcast, a very public platform, but it is it's the same at a, like Hillsdale. You know, they, they 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 keep wondering why all of their students turn out to be Catholic, even though they're a sort of It's
1: happening at Wheaton College too. Yeah. They have a more Catholic theology department, even though Catholics aren't allowed, than yeah. most Catholic universities.
0: So if you would <laughs> like anyone to come to university and start a literary and purely uh, cultural view of the great texts of history, call New Polity. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so anyway, I took this great books program, and I ended up unexpectedly coming out of it both very pro-Catholic and very pro-Amish. I was not even Catholic before Uh, Were you anything? Um, I was a kind of, at that point in life, I was kind of an agnostic. Sure. I had been raised a cafeteria Protestant. Sure. Uh, But I came back, and it was uh, uh, to Christianity. And I also came to the conclusion that Christianity isn't even really believable without Catholicism. Sure. Because why would God send Jesus to the world just to create a hodgepodge of warring sects?
0: Yes. Yes, it seems inefficient if if nothing else.
1: So there had to be some a better program. But anyway, that's kind of a digression. Don't
0: you, don't you no, don't you think though that most people expecting an answer to the question of why you went out to live with the Amish would not expect to hear that it was because you had proclivities towards Catholicism?
1: No. Yeah, that's why I didn't go into that in yeah. the book.
0: Yeah. So why do you think that's still the case that I mean, I often find in reading the Catholic tradition that it seems to me like one giant critique of technology. Now, I grant we always read in our own, uh, you know, proclivities. But were you right then seeing Catholicism, the Catholic Church, as pushing you towards a uh, desire to live without labor-saving devices?
1: I don't i I didn't get the idea directly yeah. from my own personal understanding of the Catholic tradition. I got it because the professors who taught the course were mm. so talented at um, showing how modern technology goes against the Catholic tradition and gotcha. goes against nature, right That was our main argument. It just goes against nature. Uh, if the purpose of, a machine is to take away work from us, mm-hmm. it's depriving of us of our purpose in life. Right, so right. then all we end up doing is um, having to go back and pick up the pieces of what technology took away for us. And that's the rabbit wheel we're all on right now. Technology t- takes, not only does it cost a, a lot, the sticker price and all the associated, um, you know, the energy costs. and It also takes away from us oftentimes or most of the time The very end to which it's supposedly directed, it takes, you know, it doesn't even achieve the end for which it was invented so often.
0: Can you give an example? I know you... Well, like
1: the automobile. Yeah. The automobile is supposed to get us from point A to point B faster. Mm -hmm. But by the time you factor in all of the costs, and then you factor in the social side effects, which is sprawl. Yeah we end up spending a lot more time in transit than we ever did before the invention of the automobile. So it doesn't save us time in transit at all. In fact, to me, I, I picture it this way. It's kind of like if you got into your car and you put down the accelerator and then you shot backwards, <laughs> that's what it's a car is like, a backwards mobile.
0: Yes. Yeah, there's a brief moment in the development of new labor saving technologies where it does work for the few people that have them because it's relative to a world that hasn't been shaped in the image of that technology. But once
1: perhaps, but even for those people, if you read the, you know, those are the the people who try out things first. Mm-hmm. What's that? There's a phrase for that. It's like, Early adopters. The early adopters, but there's also a word. It's like the bleeding edge. Ah, okay. They, they suffer all the cuts and bruises <laughs> testing out these things. And there's a wonderful vignette from the book, Cheaper by the Dozen, mm-hmm. about this efficiency-minded father who has a dozen children because he can get- It's cheaper by the dozen. Everything's yes. cheaper. And he's an efficiency analyst in the early 20th century. Yes, yes. He's also a car- fanatic yes back before we had mass-produced cars and his the author of the book who is his daughter says he he had a great love affair with this automobile, but his love was not requited because <laughs> the car was always breaking down on the road they would always drive two miles right. and then the whole family would fit and then they'd break down and he'd have to get out there and crank right. it up and fix it I mean right, so right, it, right. It, it, even 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 the early adopters of the rich early adopters of the car, plagued by inefficiencies and breakdowns.
0: So you went to the Amish to try a life without labor-saving devices, and did you find that your idea holds good? Was labor saved? Was yeah, labor well, lost? Yeah, the, uh,
1: well, the book culminates in my time efficiency study, mm-hmm that I sort of modeled on those old time efficiency experts, like such as the protagonist in *Cheaper uh, by the Dozen*, and I literally got out a stopwatch, and I on the on the day of the hardest labor of the year, where, which is when we were threshing wheat. Um, which is supposedly that you know my grandfather told me about threshing wheat, and he said, "You th- when you threshed wheat." This is back in the northern Iowa farm that he grew up on. Mm-hmm. That's when you knew you were a man when you could make mm-hmm. it through a day threshing wheat. Mm-hmm. So I did. I did a couple of weeks of threshing with with the Amish, um, and I paid attention to how we spent our time. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the majority of the day was actually leisure time. <laughs> and. Pleasant things because there were a lot of times when the wagon had to go back to the barn and you'd sit and talk mm-hmm. before another horse-drawn wagon would come up. Yeah. Then if you count the fact that even while you're hoisting the sheaves of wheat up onto the wagon, you're oftentimes having a conversation Yeah, right. and you're not even cognizant of the fact that you're working because you're too caught up in the talking.
0: Yeah, so this is something I noticed in your book. I remember especially you talked about... Um, Picking beans, which is one of those laborious activities that we would hope, I suppose, machines would save us from. And, and something you notice, something I've noticed, but I haven't put into words and I really appreciate this, which is that the promise of machines is to automate certain tasks so that you don't have to do them. But this idea um, doesn't come from nowhere. It's, in fact, already a part of the human constitution which is, as we do a repetitive task, at first it is laborious, but as it becomes habitual and in our fingers and in our in our muscle memory and routine and rhythmic, almost musical, you start you know chugging along with a certain rhythm. The hands take on a certain independence, and the mind is free. And it, typically, it's free to converse. Mm-hmm. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, oh yeah, this is this is weeding, this is uh, mulching, this is. Honestly, it's picking up a playroom floor that's full of Legos. That's been a recent, uh, (laughs) you know, you can get into that. Um, And it seems to me that often the maintenance of a more heavy duty petroleum powered machine, say the lawnmower, I'm just thinking of like a walk behind mower because I was doing this recently too. I only use things I've done in in a week, like as my uh, uh, touchstones here, but the mind isn't quite freed. I mean the, the the activity rather than being one of a repeated rhythm is a maintenance of a loud droning constancy as it were that actually seems to dull the mind from thought. And the way I sometimes practice this is by trying to say the rosary or Hail Marys during different kinds of work and I find with most maintenance of um, sort of High powered machinery, I start the same Hail Mary like seven times before I finish it because the mind is like, I don't know, it's hitting this like fuzzy wall that it, that that machine use seems to um, put up in front of um, repetitive labor.
1: Well, what's even more in conflict with the freeing of the mind is most of the high tech jobs that people have today where it does exactly the opposite of what we did on the farm. On the farm, we, our bodies were physically active and physically busy, thus freeing up the mind. Not only freeing up the mind, but actually establishing a kind of a pleasant rhythm mm. that formed kind of a drumbeat for conversation, mm-hmm. which is what walking does, by the way. Aristotle, na- the nickname for Aristotle's school of philosophy was the peripatetic school. Because they would just walk around mm-hmm. and talk. Mm-hmm. The walking stimulated conversation.
0: Oh, and it fills those awkward silences. Yeah. <laughs> or rather, the, the lack of walking or the lack of, of repetitive motion creates the first awkward silence.
1: Right. And then the uh, at a party, have you ever noticed that you kind of need to have finger food to give you have something to do with your hands while yeah. you're talking? Because yep. if you don't have something in your hands, you feel kind of naked.
0: Sure. And then if you're at a party and someone turns the music off, there's a sudden jolt of awareness <laughs> that you were relying on, on a sort of
1: quasi-activity to fill all your gaps, yeah. So, so so, in contrast to that model where you have the body, the physical activity thus freeing up the mind, the typical white-collar job today is the opposite. The body is completely inert, mm-hmm. and the mind is preoccupied with, I would call, very worldly stressful kinds of um, mental processes that are not enriching to the mind. Mm. Or they might be, if you're a software developer, it might be like doing very elaborate crossword puzzles. So it's not raising the mind up to a higher level, it's just um, exercising the mind in its analytical um, functions, Mm -hmm. but not raising the mind.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, wouldn't someone viewing this, without a positive sort of proclivity uh, so towards a skeptic. it. Wouldn't a skeptic say something like, look, if you're sitting there waiting for the cart to get back, um, you might be enjoying your conversation or not, but from the perspective of an opportunity cost, you're losing. Namely, the whole point of a labor-saving device is to uh, shorten the amount of time and the number of people that are necessary for it. So, you uh, you may have a good conversation, but I, the skeptic, would keep that clock running because and during that time that you're sitting waiting for the cart, you could have been investing in the stock market now.
1: Well, let me answer by way of a vignette from the book. This is a, a story that I borrowed from a um, song of the bird that I told the Amish crew while we were threshing. It's a story of a Southern fisherman who is sitting by the water, taking a break and along comes a Northern industrialist mm. and takes a look at him and he's appalled and accosts him and say, what are you doing there? Just sitting, doing nothing, I'm just taking a break. Don't you know that if you were still out there working, you could catch more fish and over time without those extra fish you catch, mm-hmm. you could afford to buy a second boat. Mm-hmm. And you kept if you kept that up, pretty soon you'd have a whole fleet of boats, mm-hmm. and then you'd be rich like me. Mm-hmm. And then the southern fisherman says, "Well, what would I do then?" And the industrial says, ah, "Well, then you could really enjoy life." Yeah. And the fisherman says, "What do you think I'm doing right now?"
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's no, true. I think there's a there, there's a fundamental this. Hmm definition or description of work between um, uh, I increasingly just think of them as like Catholics and and sort of capitalists but I, I know there's you know that's a very broad camp for me so you don't have to actually be like denominationally Catholic to be in my Catholic camp nor do you have to be a denominational capitalist to be acting like one so uh, there's a different description of work at play and it seems that, where you have an idea that work is not perfecting of your nature, right? So where it is not enjoyable to do in itself because it fulfills the powers that you have by nature, then it becomes a kind of um, thing to do as little of as possible in order to get as much reward, right? And so, Mm -hmm. and even if you're spending all your time working if it's within this mindset, it's still within this mindset of scarcity, this mindset of having to go through this in order to get some something else. That view of work is always fraught with um, some vision of, of another place you'd rather be, another thing you'd rather be doing. The presence of easy conversation and pleasantry within human work seems to me to be a sign that the work is being valued in itself for itself and not simply as a means to some future end. Um, and I think people know this. I mean, everyone loves to work. This is why, you know, there's this weird, disparate, um, there's this weird conflict between what we say we think, and what we actually think we say we don't like work, but people come on vacation and they can't stop working. It's like, we know we want to work. Um, but we are worried about saying that it is in fact a good, that it is in fact what we want to do. seems like seems like your time with the Amish showed it to be um, without showed it to be an end in itself and not just a means.
1: And I could also go on to add that it's not, it's not only for that reason that it's enjoyable, not just for the reason that they value the work for its own sake, but it's also because of how efficiently it weaves together all kinds of vital human functions. Yeah. Look at how much you're accomplishing if you're on the threshing crew. You're getting your bodily exercise, which you need to be healthy. You're out in nature. So most of the time it it would be beautiful, maybe warm days, but beautiful days, sunshine, beautiful clouds going across the sky, beautiful landscape. So you get that, the beauty of nature, um, you get conversation, you mm-hmm. get fellowship, mm-hmm. and you're even in the process harvesting the food that you're going to be eating mm-hmm. for supper or giving to your animals. And so it's a many layered activity that's accomplishing many things at once. And in the typical work that people do today, they're in a cubicle that isolates that particular task from all the other layers that Mm-hmm. I experience things. So it's very inefficient. It's a very inefficient use of time.
0: And I'd add something that I've experienced, and that's in your book, is you're raising children. Yeah. Uh, in work and not after work.
1: Yeah. you're raising, The children are one of the crops you're raising. Yeah.
0: But what I mean is when, uh, and I don't know about threshing in, in particular, um, but it seems to me that in most agricultural work, sands heavy, deadly machinery uh, there are lower level skilled tasks or lower strength tasks oh, yeah, yeah. that children can and do, and, and in fact must take part mm-hmm. in, in order for it to all work. Yeah. So then the work, just because it involves, I mean this just seems to be a big problem we have in uh, finding the wherewithal to obey the church's teaching on contraception, right? Is that within a society of alienated labor, children really are kind of useless. I mean, they're
1: economic liabilities instead of economic assets. Totally. And and I, I've mentioned
0: this a million times. So this for anyone who's regularly listened to this, just, you can just zone out. This is a rant I go on. But I, I, um, I was reading a bunch of papers from people trying to get better contraceptive use in uh, Uganda because they're just terribly inefficient at using contraception there. And so they're, you know, these good warm-hearted spreaders of the liberal gospel are going out there and saying, okay, how do we get them to make sure that they take Deprovera, that they take the pill, et cetera. And they concluded that one of the problems was when they they spoke to these largely peasant communities about why they wanted more kids, the parents would say things like, well, to have many hands makes light work, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's what the Amish say.
0: Men are useful on the farm, more more children are useful on the farm. And so you think this would be a learning moment, right, for for the Western liberal to say like, but it, and even it wasn't. It was, it was a, a moment to say, ah, well then, I see the barrier to contraceptive use. So what we need to promote is not just like propaganda about health. We need to promote urbanization and women's education. And by women's education, they meant uh, basically the breakdown of the farming system because it would mean
1: having to have. Um, So they're just basically thoughtlessly reproducing, replicating our model of development on a country that they haven't taken any time to appreciate for its own sake.
0: And what it reveals about our country is that the reason that we have such a difficulty in saying yes to life, no to contraception, is at least in large part because we are living in a world in which children are not useful to the farm and men, uh, many hands do not make... Light work, um, they're just there, and you and you have to entertain them for eighteen years. So it seems to me like the way you're describing the threshing day um, is that the, or the or rather the part of the problem of the efficiency analysis is that it always begins from some premise of what work is being done, and if you go there, and the work being done is that it is a uh, you know uh grain to cash um transformation and that that's it and so you're just measuring that output then yeah you might you might say hey a guy on this machine is going to do a better job but if you're measuring for more than this if you're measuring at the human scale and saying okay here's education happening here's fellowship happening here's aesthetic beauty being received um here's a workout right I mean, it's funny, like we just divide all the things that used to belong to work and say, okay.
1: I have to do them in separate times and places. The gym
0: for the workout, daycare or school for the kids. Um, conversation, well, when the work's all done, I'll have everybody over for a drink, you know, and then work. That goes in that box too. <laughs> you
1: no, know, yeah, it's, it's very inefficient and it invites the use of the automobile because everything's in a different time and place.
0: And it makes a lot more jobs for people that manage. These types of things. I mean, this is why it's difficult, right? Because it's counterproductive in the true sense. Because it's not just like it's an option to say, we're going to thresh in this way, or we're going to send our kids to school and work in that way. Because you need teachers at the schools. You need,
1: you know... Yeah, it, we have a whole system that's in place, and we're part of that system. Right. It's hard to switch. And that's what leads me to my the next segment of our conversation, which is how do you adapt the Amish way of life or Amish principles, at least, mm-hmm. to a non-Amish context. And that's what I spent the last 20 years doing and learning about.
0: Well, it always seemed to me that there is something, you know, because people would talk like this, oh, the Catholics should be more like the Amish. And it's like, well, but obviously there's a reason that, that we're not, right? Like there's a reason um, that the Amish seem to only be able to attain what they attain, uh within a sort of isolated framework whereas the catholic is always saying like if we're going to do something it should be the whole world right it is not it it is literally a universal faith it's for everyone at the end of the day everyone should become catholic
1: right it's hard to go to apprentice among the amish without becoming amish either coming becoming amish or leaving the amish yeah sure um and i've but i i sort of have kind of developed some strategies since then for, and the, the book I'm currently working on is, is trying to sample strategies all over the country and different people are doing that will somehow achieve similar or the same goals, but without having to join the Amish or become a farmer.
0: Right, because even the Amish don't seem to be able to maintain being the Amish these days, it seems like. Well, it
1: depends on where you go. Yeah, um, Some areas are very commercialized and they've been swallowed up. Mm-hmm. And other Amish, like the group that I live with, is very successful, mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. successful in maintaining a very strict regimen, a, a very low-tech regimen, and very high in its cohesion as a community. Mm-hmm. Um, but they tend to pick good locations yeah. that are fairly remote. It's hard sometimes, like the Lancaster County area has is, is been a victim of its own success, those Amish, because tourists flock there. And it's kind of like a circus. Gotcha. Uh, But that's not the way it is with these other more remote communities. And by the way, the Amish are now in 27, 28 states. Wow. But back to
0: the... Yeah, so what are you doing to integrate this with uh, non-Amish? Well,
1: I have this this term that I... I don't know if it's my original term that I would call householding. The idea being that if you can... um, uh, integrate work and life at home wherever you are uh that is somehow the solution Mm. and where i differ from say a lot of people who would want to take lessons from the amish such as even myself is that um the first thing to do is not to grow your own food Mm. it's not about growing your own food you have to analyze what what's entangling us in the system, first of all, and and know what to how to disentangle before you're going to be able to get anywhere. And I have m- my list of what I call the Big Ten, which is short for the Big Tentacles. <laughs> and at the top, I would... I mean, you could argue about what order sure. to put them in, but the worst ones are at the top of the list, and one of them is Big Bank, hmm. another one... Is big med, mm-hmm. another one is big ed, mm-hmm. another one is big auto, and you go on down the list, and at the the one that's least entangling one us, the one that's giving us the most benefit for the least cost at the personal level is um, big agriculture, mm-hmm. because we have such incredibly cheap food and it's so abundant. Mm-hmm. So to start out with, I would say don't. Move out to the land and grow your own food, mm-hmm. because you're going to then be very reliant on big auto, which is much more entangling. The automobile, um, you're going to have to buy this farm. Then you're going to be entangled with a big bank. You're going to be have this big mortgage, um, and etc. Um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So you're going in the wrong order. You're not going to get disentangled very easily. I by living so counterintuitively. I'm finding that of all the places I've tried, the easiest place to live with less technology and live a more whole life is in the middle of a city Mm. where everything's walkable, bikeable. I live in urban St. Louis right now in a historic neighborhood that helps. It's this beautiful historic architecture and tree-lined streets. And if you can find a place like that where there are a lot of rundown fixer uppers which there are in St. Louis, they're super abundant. They're actually giving away houses. If you're willing to take their whole, whole swaths of the North side have these tumble down houses. that needs people to come in and just take, take, take over. Yeah. Um, If you can do that, then you get a house for next to nothing. You don't have to have a mortgage. So there you don't have to pay for your house twice and owe the big bank, all that money. You also can walk or bike everywhere. So you don't have the cost of a car. Yeah. And you're, you'll be healthier because you're walking and biking instead of riding in a car. So medical costs will go down. Uh, your need for medical costs will go down and so forth and so on. So, on. so paradoxically, <laughs> it's the city, I think, that is the most promising place to, um, to go low, low tech. Mm-hmm.
0: No, I think I've, I've seen this happen um, too many people where the cash dependence in our society is uh, so high that to move to the country and start uh, eating a lot of peaches, as John Prine said, is uh, usually means that someone within the homesteading family has a high-paying uh, job that they're working remote or traveling to yeah. in order to, to take care of the cash needs. Um, which of course, I don't know. I'm not, I I don't care. It's like it, it, I don't have a, I'm not a stickler for purity here. Like if that's working for you, it's just that if the goal here is a, um, a kind of life in which our labor is not being expropriated and ruined for the sake of being divided into multiple commodity purchases, then merely moving off. Into the country, starting to grow food is not quite going to do it.
1: Right. Yeah. And it, yeah. And also, if you're re- working remotely in the country and you're supplementing your income on a computer, doesn't really matter that you're at home because you might as well be a million miles away. Oh yeah. yeah. It, it, it's not a kind of work that can engage your young children. And on right. The farm. If,
0: if all it took was actually being in the country, then presumably the people who are in the country would be as free and happy and independent as as you're hoping for. But my experience of the American country right now is pretty much identical to American suburban life in terms of the actual habits of people. It's like, yeah, they're going out to operate you know machines to do um, the agricultural work, but it's all... Netflix and iPads at
1: home, you know. And in the city, if you can economize to the extent that I did, you can afford the luxury of doing a craft trade for your income, which is what I did. I, I make most of my money from soap. I am handmade soap and sell it uh, at the local farmer's market. And I have a very good recipe, so I have a lot of loyal clientele. But it's a, it's a kind of a trade that the whole family can be involved in because a lot of the parts of the task are very easy for children of any age to do. Mm-hmm. And they can see your, your parents or your father, they're working on it. So they, um, <clears throat> it's something very concrete. That's very intuitively understandable. So they get involved. So you don't even have to try to, um, to raise your kids consciously so much as you just do it. And it just, happens naturally mm-hmm. and the testimony to the success of, it, of this is that my youngest son who's now 25 years old who was he went off to college and he's a composer he's a musician and mm-hmm. he loves to compose and he was looking for a way to make money to support his composing habits so mm-hmm. he tried he was recruited to work in a in a um, inve- investment advising Mm. Company. Mm -hmm. So he did that for a year and found it very stressful and not very rewarding. And then he, uh, kind of on his own, he realized that making soap like I did would be a much better way to support his composing habit. So he came back home um, this past May and to apprentice for a week. So he really got all the the tricks down. And now he's starting, he's going off on his own as Uh a soap maker so that he can have the leisure time and the income to do what he really loves, which is composing music. That's awesome. And so it's nice to have that passed down. I, I feel like that's uh he also got the music for me because I'm a musician. I mean, oh, yeah. that was in his blood because I was playing classical music at, at home a lot. I had a little musical group that rehearsed at home. So he grew up hearing that from the womb on both classical and jazz and everything in between.
0: Yeah. But is this, is this sort of, Ideal of a, um, I guess there's two questions. It seems like sometimes it can seem that the kind of sustainable urban existence has a certain mm, parasitic nature to it on the things provided to it by a larger system that requires people to be in the kinds of jobs that we would obviously not like for ourselves or to be. So for instance, it's like, uh, you know, okay, you're in a city, this is great. You can take the subway for instance, but obviously the kind of infrastructure within a city at that scale is supported by fuel consumption and by, um, a entire, uh, world of, Alienated labor, et cetera.
1: Well, everything's relative. I would probably be tempted to argue that, relatively speaking, a dense urban area is a lot less exploitative than sprawling suburban areas. Mm. Yeah. So uh, most people don't realize this, but the average New York City resident leaves one third the environmental imprint of the average American. Wow. Because they don't drive cars and they're, uh, uh, they're walking everywhere. The building, the proximity makes it easier to keep heat or air conditioning in the, in the buildings. Mm-hmm. So you don't lose very much to the, to the outside air. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of um, benefits of proximity reduce the impact and the burden on everybody else. So that's one way to look at it. And the other way, you know, there's another way to look at it too is that no matter where you are, if you're living a whole life where you're doing a lot of little things that go together to become a householder and not dedicating yourself to the one thing, which is the career specialty. Yeah. And let's face it, most of the people listening to this podcast, if they went into a career, they're probably going to have a white collar. They would probably have a white collar career or a career that depended on advanced education. Yeah. And that kind of career is the kind of career that assumes other people are doing the dirty work. Mm. But if you're leading a whole life, you rotate. So you're doing a lot of dirty tasks. They kind of intermittently, you go through a cycle of tasks that involve heavy, thankless work at times. Yeah, yeah. Um, And like digging, like I, since I'm working on my own house, I had to dig a three foot trench from my house to my carriage house to lay new lines, because I'm turning my carriage house into a guest house. Mm-hmm. And I did it myself, but that was pretty horrible, heavy work. And I procrastinated on that. Some of these things, you you, you know, you'll procrastinate on. And, you, and I wonder about, uh, there was a guy next door who's rehabbing his house. He's hiring people to do all that work. And they're out there. This is all they do all year long. Mm-hmm. Those people, they're digging in the dirt ditches all day long. And I kind of felt sorry for. I got in a conversation with them. Yeah. Um, so I think if everybody lived like I did, were, nobody would have to just do the thankless jobs. Everyone would rotate and do some of the thankless jobs as part of their overall routine. Yeah, that is definitely an
0: experience of fixing up a house. I mean, it's unfortunate sometimes that by the time you get good at a particular task, you're done for 10 years or so.
1: <laughs> but I like, I hope that it sticks. <laughs> that is, yeah, it's, you know, there are limits to living. You, there are some things, you know, you're just going to delegate. Uh, there's some yeah. things you delegate because you can't do it all. And that was, that's always been true. I mean, you know, people have been carpenters or stonemasons or there, there's certain, a certain degree of specialization down through time.
0: But there is something horrid about the idea of working a job that you hate just for money to be able to then delegate all of the tasks of your life to other people. Like there's something that seems very limiting to the human spirit there. That we really are capable of quite a lot. And our hands want to work. I mean we're we're embodied creatures. We want to learn, we want to get good at things.
1: And oftentimes to supposedly think Thankless jobs are actually healthy. Like digging the ditch, it, I, it was good aerobic workout, good for my muscles, and I wasn't used to doing that kind of work, so it it was heavy, um, but it was it was healthy too. But I wouldn't want to do it all day long every day. No,
0: oh, I get that. I get that. Yeah. Now there's a there's a term functional fitness that people bandy about, and it's a it's a trend within gyms where they oh yeah they do things that imitate. Work in order to work out certain muscles. So, you know, you're hammering or you're digging, or, you know. Um, and
1: why not just hammer and dig? Right, then? Not hammer and dig, right, exactly.
0: <laughs> you know, you could get paid while doing it, you know, get paid to go to the gym.
1: That's why um, one thing I did do that a lot of people would think maybe would be thankless work, but it wasn't at all, was I drove a pedicab for 15 years in St. Louis. A pedicab is a pedal powered rickshaw. Oh. Um, it looks like a little chariot. It's a little fiberglass chariot mm-hmm. that has that's pulled by a, a kind of a bicycle. Yeah, and it was a great way to get paid to stay in shape. Yeah, I think I felt like every year I did it, I got a year younger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it was fun because you'd have conversations with the passengers. You take them to the baseball game.
0: Uh-huh. Well, I think um, I think it's hard to convince people that more work is better not more of the same work not more of work you hate but a willingness to be the agent of change the agent of causality in your world to say i'm gonna take this on and And not farm it out to to anyone Um, I think this it's it's very difficult because I think we are kind of educated to believe that only expertise should handle each uh, compartmentalized part of the world and and it's part of an industrial workplace training and it's Mm. part of school frankly I remember in school taking, taking tests where you know, they showed what job you were suited for because you took this test. Um, and it's that similar idea of, there's a fear that of our own power, really, like there's a fear that we really are capable of learning and accomplishing each task. And so we'd rather just find one thing to become an expert of so that we can hire the experts of other things. Um, and, and this is a, this is a hard vision for me to
1: break. But but you but what you're, I think you put your your um, finger on it when you said we have a fear of this because it's a fear-based, we're, we're afraid of our own powers. Mm-hmm. But the human being is by nature omnivorous or om, omnicompetent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all we have to do is dive in and do it. It does help to get coaching. It does help to get training. I, myself... Took a course at the Shelter Institute in Bath, Maine that really opened my eyes to all the principles of home building and remodeling and everything that I would need to know. And that has served me very well in the last 30 years um, or 25 years or however many years it is. Um, You yourself here are starting a college, which is aiming to do something similar Mm -hmm. to get people used to working with their hands and being practical.
0: One of the things Aristotle says about the hands is that they are fitting for an intellectual creature because just as the intellect is open to an infinity of, you know, it's infinitely open. Uh, so the hand can take on an infinite number of shapes, basically. Oh, like that's a very the interesting. body. Where is,
1: the, where is that passage? Yeah,
0: that's a great question.
1: Is that in the politics? It's
0: almost certainly in the politics. Uh, in my head, it's actually, I'm thinking of when Aquinas cites it. He cites it in a, a question...
1: No, I don't know. But Aristotle is kind of a fraught example because he kind of does also says the opposite in the politics. He says, basically, if only the looms would weave by themselves, then the slaves would go free.
0: Well, Aristotle's not a Christian, I mean, <laughs> right? Like at the end of the day, he couldn't conceive of the political life actually being extended to everyone. Um, You couldn't conceive of social order without slavery. And Christianity didn't rid the world of slavery by accident. It is true that until you have um, the particular revelation of of Christianity that um, it does seem kind of like nature – to imagine that not everyone can con- fulfill the capacities that are apparent in the hand or in the head. Um,
1: that's, that's, that's very apparent. If you read um, some of the, well, they're novelized. I've recently read two different novelized versions of life in ancient Rome mm. a, a historical nonfiction by, one by Robert Graves and one by Robert Harris, hmm. and it's it's very how it depicts slavery so in, in such an interesting way that nobody could conceive of there not being slavery. Mm-hmm. Sla- I mean, that would be conceive like trying to conceive. of today, for be, people to conceive of a, a world without cars and dishwashers and televisions, well, I mean, they were just there. Uh, they're part of the furniture, and you had to have them.
0: Well, yeah, this is, Ivan Illich makes this point. He says that the question is not how to do without machines. The question is how to do without slaves. A reliance on machine technology is quite literally um, a reliance on slavery. Mechanical slaves, yeah. uh, Yeah, mechanical slaves physically, and then a reliance on unseen sources of production whereby we get the machines, fuel the machines, use the machines, right?
1: Yeah, sure. It's the same mentality and also results in a lot of the same dilemmas because it was expensive to own a lot of slaves. Mm-hmm. And so similar, it's very expensive to own and take care for a lot of machines. Yeah. That's why a lot of families can't afford to have more than two children because there's so many mouths to feed other than their children. Right, right.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it does seem that the... Sometimes when we advocate for a life with less, there can be the idea that it's this life with less. What I mean is you're going to keep all of the goods that you get from basically a cash-based machine operating society. You're just going to sort of get them differently. Um, And I find that this is not quite true. What I mean is like there's there's a um like there's a real poverty involved in saying no to a particular machine to get the job done. It's just that it's enriching your life as a whole, usually. But there is like particular how do I put it? The, to build discipline
1: a w- you have a discipline where you fast for the sake of a greater good
0: yeah i mean when i was building a wall i was choosing to do it with my hands um there was suffering involved in that it wasn't like it wasn't like machines just fooled everyone because really there's a way of doing it with your hands where you 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 know use as little energy as you would driving a backhoe it's like no no you do actually risk yourself more hurt yourself more on some level, you work more and you work harder to get the job done. The question is not, uh, the problem is one in which we compare the goods of um, a life that doesn't rely on industrial machinery to directly to the goods of a life that does. The Wall is a good example to what we were speaking about earlier because immediately I found that I couldn't do it alone which is not an experience you necessarily have when you're operating machines. So there's no like built-in need for society when you do most of your labor through the operation of machines. Um, and because of this, you miss out on the goods of conversation, the goods of helping others. Um, and so I guess all I'm saying is that it is hard because it's also a experience of conversion. You're not just moving from one machine to a new type of work that replaces the machine one-to-one you're moving from someone who has, um, a individual mindset of getting the job done through purchasing the commodity and using it to getting the job done through creating a social sphere in which we're all getting along and making sure that we're working together, et cetera, et cetera. It just seems like there's more of a, um, sacrifice to move from one to the other than I think sometimes people are willing to admit.
1: Yeah, I mean, in other word, another way to put it is there's a steep learning curve. Yeah, maybe. yeah. there is a steep learning curve. Um, although I would say that it's not as steep as that. I mean, it's not as steep as oh, you're going to be toiling and building rock walls. Mm-hmm. I think the first steep learning curve is to is to Realize, I mean, for me, I get to go back to the thing I s- uh, very start out with the beginning is that if if you really want to disengage from the capitalist industrial system, you have to get rid of the image of the cabin in the woods hmm. with you know like Laura Ingalls Wilder and you're going to go off there and get away from it all. Um, cause that really presupposes the automobile. It presupposes all kinds of things that won't disentangle you at all. You'd just be even more entangled maybe. Yeah. Um, and it's that mental adjustment that might be the steepest part of, part of learning curve, moving to an inner city like St. Louis to a neighborhood where you can afford to buy houses that if you on a limited budget, that means you're going to be living in a kind of a, a gritty neighborhood. Yeah, uh, You're gonna be living a little bit on the edge. You're gonna be having to sw- um, swap the idea that the suburbans are suburban life is safe because I have myself, totally self-enclosed world and I get it everywhere in my tank that we <laughs> yeah, call a yeah. car yeah, yeah. to a place where you feel more exposed and more vulnerable and then you're at the mercy of neighbors. Um, and that's the kind of mental adjustment that I think would be the most daunting for a lot of people in fact, it does turn out that for somebody like me, who is not a member of a gang in an inner city you know, slum, which there aren't any close to my house, but there are some in St. Louis, um, it's actually a lot safer to live in the city than in the country. Because in the country, you spend so much more time in your car. And mm. uh, so you're much more likely to die randomly in a car accident than mm. you are to be killed randomly by a mugger. Sure, sure. I mean, it's... Shocking, it happens once in a while in St. Louis. Maybe once a year there's a shocking mugging where somebody's killed and it's not mm-hmm. a gangland thing, maybe once mm-hmm. a year. Mm-hmm. But every day in the St. Louis metro area, some person dies in a car accident right, right, right. on average.
0: Right,
1: right, And that's not... Nobody takes that into account. And most of it is in the suburbia because that's where most of the people are driving.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. Ivan Illich said that... Wealth in a society of counterproductivity. So, a society in which the engagement of labor saving devices as a constant form of life actually is laborious and done constantly and, and makes for more labor for everyone. Uh, he says, in this kind of society, you're going to know the wealthy, the elite, um, by virtue of their ability to not have to access goods through system.
1: So the system. So like the owner of Walmart doesn't have to drive to Walmart to get his stuff.
0: Exactly. Or, you know, the the same people in California who've been pushing for getting their, um, you know, touchpad technology or uh, touch screen technologies into public schools as the mechanism for learning themselves they send their kids to Montessori schools where they're touching right. wood and they won't blocks let their
1: kids on
0: screens or um,
1: they've they publicly admitted that
0: oh yeah yeah they, yeah Jeff Bezos is a big big Montessori man uh, <laughs> that's or or you know something um you know you can see a trend, I was just reading uh, Matthew Crawford's Why We Drive, and, and he, he sees a trend, which seems likely to me that it's going to occur uh, on, a, on a larger scale, which is basically like as um, cars and driving becomes more and more of an automated uh, capital-intensive task where you're sort of pushing a button and, you know, everything up to the self-driving car is the sort of future for driving, uh, precisely at the same time, all of the values and virtues of, um, old cars and, and sort of, you know, very direct controlled driving, stick shifting down, you know, this, this beautiful image of the sports car that's on the open road kind of thing, that this will become the province of the people who are wealthy enough to be able to afford not to have to drive the cars that are basically... Um, neutered versions of of what once was
1: and you know I mean maybe the crowning example might be that oftentimes, the the dream of retirement of a CEO who's finally made you know his 200 million or whatever Mm -hmm. he's amassed is to finally be able to go out in the country and like raise cattle and live a leisurely life like the yeoman of yore
0: yeah right exactly and that goes back to the idea that it takes a certain amount of capital to live like a peasant now yeah. whereas to be a peasant now is precisely to be divorced from any productive property most especially the land all of which is to ask like is this just a boutique game the this um is this something that or maybe i should be specific is the um movement towards a life without heavy use of um, machine-powered technology, something that is really capable of being everyone's life in in a gradated fashion, or is it something that is available just to a certain socioeconomic class that can afford it within a system where everything else is necessary wage labor, driving a lot of cars, making sure you have a phone so you can text your boss, that sort of thing?
1: I think you know, in the abstract, yes, practically speaking, it would be hard if, if there's a number of conditions that would have to be in place. People like me would also have to support other people like me economically. Mm -hmm. So if I, if I live, if I make handmade soap and walk or bike everywhere, Mm -hmm. um, but then I do all my shopping at save a lot or walmart Mm -hmm. or home depot then i'm not doing anything to reciprocate what the people Mm -hmm. who are buying my soap are doing so Mm -hmm. there won't i'm not doing anything to help other people uh so i think you have to bear that in mind i mean yes to some extent you're gonna have to um not be a purist and like i will buy toilet paper at save a lot Mm -hmm. i mean but there's no toilet paper stand at the farmer's market. Mm-hmm. So I don't feel guilty about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I try to buy my vegetables. If I do buy vegetables that I don't grow at the local farmer's market. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's only fair. So, but if you do it, ne- if you so that's one condition you have to, you know, put your money where the, your mouth is. And then another condition of course would be our system is to a huge extent a reflection of the laws of the society that we live in and the regulations, even at the local level. So those regulations can foster a better way of life or, or discourage it depending on what they are. Mm-hmm. So it will help to be active in your neighborhood association or whatever level of government where sometimes these issues come up mm-hmm. like bike paths. Mm-hmm. If uh, bike pa- biking is kind of a luxury in St. Louis or it's viewed as kind of a something for the few, partly because we don't have nearly as an extensive a bike network as some cities, like mm-hmm. the the best city I've heard in the country is Davis, California, or another, San Luis Obispo, California, two cities that have just interlacing bicycle paths everywhere. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to ever bike on the street. Um, St. Louis could be like that. And I'm trying to actually get a task force together to, there's some places that just cry out for a bicycle-pedestrian bridge over the railroad tracks that would connect north and south St. Louis, connect our neighborhoods. That would make a huge difference. So infrastructure really matters. Political activity to a certain extent matters. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I was thinking of the laws regulating um, houses, so what what constitutes a house, uh, where the desire to live without a certain reliance on, say, electricity... Or um, heat through electricity or, or natural gas, is practically illegal. I mean, you can't build a house and heat it with a wood stove in my city, for
1: instance. Um, Seriously, what city is that? Steubenville. Steubenville. Yeah, yeah. Telling you cannot heat a house with a wood stove in Steubenville. Uh, you cannot.
0: No, let me. That's right. You can. You can have a wood stove, but it can't. You have to have uh, another form of. Uh, oh, fix. it
1: can't be... You have to have a backup furnace.
0: Mm-hmm. And I also presume that... I don't know this to be the case, but I doubt you could build any kind of house without a main
1: uh, line out to the to the sewer. Um, oh, n- doubtless. Yeah, there's a lot of regulations like that. Um, I will say that that wouldn't be just the... Um, if you had to take out a loan, the mortgage company wouldn't let you build a house without a furnace. Oh, all right,
0: that might be more, though.
1: <laughs> so there are a lot of reasons why that wouldn't happen. Right. Um, so, yeah, and that um, some neighborhood associations don't allow people to hang up their laundry in the backyard. That's true. There was a really funny little cartoon I saw one time with a picture of a woman hanging up her laundry in the backyard. And then there's a police car over. Uh, at the edge on the street. And the policeman is saying through the megaphone, step away from the clothesline. So that can, I mean, some neighborhoods are really uppity. I had, some sometimes, I mean, people think, oh, if you move in the city, you're going to have problems with neighbors. But you can have worse problems. The worst problems are suburban neighbors Mm. because there's so much more, uh, not in my backyard attitude, mm. um, or they're so much more divorced from the land and what it takes. I had a friend who lived in one of the most expensive neighborhoods of an inner suburb of St. Louis called University City, and he was on the most expensive street. And um, he, all he wanted to do was grow a garden mm-hmm. in his backyard. Mm-hmm. He couldn't get it. He couldn't do it. Really? And the reason was that in order to do it, well, there were a lot of big oak trees. Mm-hmm. And this created two issues at once. It created a lot of shade yeah. <laughs> and a lot of squirrels. Yeah. And so the, he found yeah. a sunny place in his backyard and he was able to put in the garden, but the squirrels were getting everything. So then he took to um, um, getting these benign squirrel traps. hmm and he found out in the, where he lived, he could put the squirrels to death by drowning them in the squirrel trap. Oh. But word got out that he was doing nah. this in the neighborhood and he became anathema. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a gynecologist across the yeah. way from him who came up to him and said, and he, he was a, he was a Jew. Uh, yeah. And he said, don't you know that squirrels are God's creatures? Oh my. <laughs> So they ended up moving. They Now and they're in a high-rise condo, they just gave it up completely.
0: <laughs> My gosh, that's terrifying. Yeah, we've got a law here. It's a weird one where you can't have a vegetable garden in your front yard. Oh, really? You know, it has to be in the backyard. And this leads to problems. Sometimes the shade in the backyard isn't oh, yeah. convenient in the front yard. It's the big part or something like that. That is silly. But you chase these laws down, and it's funny because it's, it's not... Really, I mean, we want to phrase. Uh, sometimes I want to phrase it like this: you know, centralized power bad. Like small neighborly association good. But almost always, when there's a bad law, within the sort of centralized regime, it's because of some neighborly conflict. And you find out, like, well, the reason no one can have a you know, a garden, a vegetable garden in their front yard is because a neighbor complained about a certain house growing a squash, didn't think it was sightly, and so it became became law.
1: I don't think that's true in St. Louis, and I know it's not true in Denver because I have a cousin who grows a huge vegetable garden completely surrounding her house in urban D- Denver. Yeah. So that's not everywhere.
0: No, 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 definitely not. But I, but I do know what you mean. There's a, um, there is a use and abuse of city code um, that can make a life. That's less reliant on technology, yeah. yeah. Like
1: whether they allow like, chickens, where they mm-hmm. in, Saint, in Saint Louis, they have a, a law that you can have up to four animals, but they bar uh, hooved animals except for horses. So you could have horses, you could have four horses, you could have horses in the city of Saint Louis because everybody used to. They always they had wow. car- they took horses as <laughs> to pull their carriages, right? Right, um, so that law has never been removed. You could have four horses. Uh, but you can have four cows, you can not have four pigs, you can not have four uh, sheep, you can have four goats. Right. But you can have chickens.
0: Can you have any goats?
1: You can have any hooved animals. Any, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. We can have two goats here. Oh, yeah? Yeah, two goats, you can have two pigs. Um, but there's a lot of, this is what I wonder about city law. Uh, we're getting a little far afield here. But I wonder <laughs> if there's no mention of the animal, can you just try it out? Like There's nothing oh, probably, in our law if there's about there's not
1: sheep. a rule against it. <laughs> I would say, for your neighbor's sake, you want to do something that won't be too too outrageous. Well,
0: right, and and urban sort of gardening has this limitation where people, you know, imagine the animals that they can keep, but then they end up buying feed for them in a way that just makes them as reliant on cash as they were yeah, before. Yeah, yeah,
1: that's one reason why I'm not into into a- animals. I just didn't want to have chickens and pay for the feed, and when yeah. the chickens run out of. You know, bugs D in your backyard. They're going to have to have feed. There's only so many bugs yeah. available.
0: To yeah. Eat. We've been keeping them on compost pretty well. They don't oh, really? They don't really need a lot of supplement. Mm-hmm. Buy a bag of feed usually in the winter. That, that about does it. Okay. Give it a shot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Maybe I should do it. I'll have to consult you afterward.
0: All right. So your final word for uh, for the listeners in New Polity. How, why, um, why should they consider a life of less
1: mis- machine use And um, more leisure, I suppose. Why should they consider a life of less machine use and more leisure? Well, you've already answered the question. I know, it was a softball. In the question itself, it's (laughs) phrased. Because it's self-evidently desirable. I mean, if it's true of what I'm claiming, uh, then it's self-evident. If you, if you intelligently choose technology, and I use the principle of what I call minimation, which is minimizing the amount of automation. Doesn't mean the automation is necessarily a small amount. It might be a large amount, yeah. but it's just the minimum that you need to achieve your goals because technology always brings a cost. Mm. And no matter what it is, it's some kind of cost and it will get a, in the way of the very goal you're trying to achieve. So, if you can do that, if you can find it a more direct, more holistic way, um, and it could be an organizational solution, it could be a lifestyle solution, Yeah. Um, usually that's a better choice than just buying a, a machine. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think cost analysis really requires um, reflection on who we are and what we need to thrive and flourish. And I think this is why so often... There's this tie um, between a reluctance to jump all into machine use and Catholicism and really Christianity considered more generally, which is that it's precisely when people are really confronting um, a decisive claim about what makes life good. Like, what do you need? You need love, communion. You need the Lord in your life. You need freedom from slavery and tyranny, freedom from sin, and you have this vision, precisely then you have the the framework by which any particular task is never going to be adequately judged on the basis of costs of just time and money alone. right? Because everything you ask, you have to ask, am I fulfilling the goal of becoming holy? Am I fulfilling the goal of uh, my vocation as a father? Am I fulfilling the goal of... Um, Practicing contemplation within my work, am I fulfilling the goal of offering up my sufferings? Things like this, I think, tend the religious person towards uh, these kinds of views. I don't think it's an accident. Um, but but being willing to provide total cost analysis and not partial cost analysis, I think is is what's most fundamental. Because if we try to just say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna figure out clever ways of you know, throwing my body into something as opposed to a machine, and then and then just delighting in this certain like feeling of purity that can come with not being involved with machines. I think that's only going to take us so far. But if we can say, okay, what goods do I want out of life? Who do I want to be? And then like you say, at what point does a machine stop fulfilling that goal and start to work against it? Well, then let's cut out use there. Which, as I understand, is kind of what the Amish do i think at least traditionally when they discuss
1: i mean they attend i mean the more intelligent amish will have more intelligent solutions i think that communities can vary on how intelligent their their politics is Mm -hmm. but what you're saying you know another way to say it is the very word economics comes from the word household management oikonomia in greek Mm -hmm. and so this, is, this gets me back to my original point, is the best way to be economical is to have a household-based economy, and those cost-benefit analysis become much more apparent, mm. the solutions if you, if you do that.
0: Yeah. All right. Eric, Brandy, thank you very much. Thank you. We're happy to have you on the podcast. We will see everyone next time. Goodbye.